The Lord said to Moses, Send men to explore the land of Canaan. I will give that land to the Israelites. Send one leader from each tribe. So Moses obeyed the Lord's command. He sent the Israelite leaders out from the desert of Paran. Moses sent them to explore Canaan. He said, Go through southern Canaan and then into the mountains. See what the land looks like. Are the people who live there strong or weak? Are, the, are there a few or many? What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What about the towns they live in? Do they have walls or are they open like camps? What about the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Are there trees there? Try to bring back some of the fruit from the land. And they came back to Moses and Aaron and all the Israelites at Kadesh. This was in the desert of Paran. The men reported to them and showed everybody the fruit from the land. They told Moses, we went to the land where you sent us. It is a land where much fruit grows. Here's some of its fruit. But the people who live there are strong. Their cities are walled and large. We even saw some Anakites there. The Amalekites live in the southern area. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the mountains. The Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan River. Then Caleb told the men, told the people near Moses to be quiet. Caleb said, we should go up and take care of the land for ourselves. We can do it. But the men who had gone with him said, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And those men gave the Israelites a bad report about the land they explored. They said the Lord, the land would eat us up. All the people we saw are very tall. We saw the Nephilim people there. The Anakites come from the Nephilim people. We felt like grasshoppers, and we looked like grasshoppers to them. Thank you, Kira. If we haven't met before, I'm Rob, and I'm so glad you're here today. We've been in this series that we've been calling Live Fearless, and we've been looking at what it means to live fearless. And as we go through the series, this week we start on this topic of the report you believe. And so I just want to hear, or you don't even, actually I don't need to hear anything. I can just put your hand up if you've received a bad report. Anybody received a bad report? Okay. How about just bad news? All right. More, even more of you. Some of you are like, yeah, bad report, but lots of you are like bad news. I mean, bad news is everywhere. I... Um, got this watch that like connects to my phone and I thought it was really neat because it would be less obtrusive than sticking a little device up in my life, but it's got this thing called um, the company name and then news. And it'll pop up and it'll be like, you know, millions dead after earthquake or millions injured or, you know, suicidal person. It's the anniversary of, I'm like, I don't need more negativity in my life. There's plenty of negativity already there. And so I think a lot of us, if we think about it, receiving bad news is one of the quickest ways that bring us to fear. Yes? No? Maybe? All right. Well, maybe it's just me. But... It's probably obvious that many of us live in fear of that news because we can hear it at work, at school, and at home. But there are a lot of things that just cause the fear of bad news that's actually not bad news. I mean, think about it. Um, it's the end of the semester for our middle school and high school, and so that means conferences and report cards. Anybody have a fear of bad news for conferences and report cards? Because maybe like you're going to be off of gaming privileges for a month or your social life is going to be slammed shut for a month. I see some of you. You know. And if you're a parent of a driving teenager, if the phone rings after 1030 at night, fear of bad news. I mean, my heart's pounding and it's not good. Um, but some of you, I'm looking, just looking, looking. Okay. 
Some of you are so young that you don't even remember that there was this thing before smartphones called cell phones. There was this thing before cell phones called like regular phones that didn't have caller ID, where it was just a phone on the wall with a cord that would ring, and you had to sit there and go, I don't know, do I answer it? Do I not? I mean, fortunately, in the 80s, those answering machines came out so you could screen the call. Yeah, I know, yeah, fear of bad news, like, hello? Oh, okay. So, anyway, of other, of other thoughts that cause bad news. Um, honey, we need to talk. <laughs> or, uh, hey, the boss wants to see you in her office now. Now, for some of you, that immediately makes your heart seize and your jump up into your throat because you're assuming the worst. But I think for others of you, you might be saying, like, that's good. It's about time she noticed. I've been busting my butt around here. Maybe I'm going to get a raise. But it's bad news, and then it's the fear of bad news. And if we believe and follow Jesus, then we already have the best news ever. Jesus said, in this world, we'll have trouble, but take heart or have courage or live fearless. I've overcome the world. So what would it look like to live with no fear of bad news? Think about it. Uh, Psalm 112 talks about this in verses 6 through 8. It says, Surely the righteous will never be shaken. Their hearts will remain steadfast. They will be remembered forever. They will have no fear of bad news. Their hearts are steadfast. Their their hearts are secure. They trust in the Lord. They have no fear. In the end, they look in triumph on their foes. See, righteous people aren't self-righteous people. Righteous people really, truly are people who are right with God. That's all that righteous means. And it says they'll never be shaken. They'll have this non-anxiousness about them. It says their souls are steady. It means when they go through the storms of life, they're not shaking to the waves of emotion. They are steady through that. They're unshaken through that. They have an anchor that goes deeper than their emotions. They still receive bad news. It'd be nice if it just said, they won't get bad news. But it doesn't say that. It says they'll receive bad news. They just don't have a fear of bad news. Today we're going to look at what it means to live fearless even when we receive bad news. So if you're a note taker, you might want to write this down. I think living fearless does not come from the news we receive, but from the report we believe. So just kind of roll that around in your head. Not the news we receive, but the report we believe. Because we'll look at four different ways that that might happen in our lives, and you just decide if you're going to agree with me. So if you've heard the phrase, uh, home is where the heart is. We put, put your hand up if you've heard the phrase, home is where the heart is. It's kind of a nice little cliche. So anybody can play on this one. Um, what do you think that actually means? Home is where the heart is. It's not about a building. It's, about a building. it's about relationships. Anything else? It's a, feeling. it's a feeling. So that's squishy. 
Somebody who's more concrete, help, help out. It's where you want to be. I want more. Shows where you put your values. All right, I think we're getting somewhere. Anybody else? I think you're all right. I just don't know if there's more. Living in your skin. Oh, being comfortable in your own skin. I think those are all true. I would say that it's the things that we value most that, that we put ourselves there, that we could be home anywhere if what we care about and the people that we care about, those feelings are present. I think in the Bible, it also kind of points to this. It's where our heart, mind, and soul live. It's way more than a physical place. It's certainly a physical place, but it's more than that. Mental, emotional, relational, and spiritual place, like a state. I would say it's how you experience wherever you're living. So I would call it a spiritual reality. And I think this is what the Bible actually talks about when it uses physical names of physical places in the Bible. Yes, they are real places, but they're also pointing to a spiritual reality about what people are experiencing. Okay, so take that idea, go with me to people living in Egypt. Okay, Egypt's a physical place, but whenever God's people are in Egypt, there's something else that they're experiencing because Egypt in the Hebrew means Mitzrayim, and Mitzrayim means the narrow place. And think about how Egypt is geographically. Anybody know what kind of terrain is in Egypt? At least a majority of the country? Desert. Death, if there's not irrigation. So, but then they have this amazing river, the largest one in the world, the Nile. So anything that's near the Nile has life and vibrancy, but anything beyond that is death. So it's geographically narrow, but it's also religiously narrow because Egypt was the only major world power that would like worship all these gods, but not acknowledge that there was a God above all other gods. So it's religiously narrow as well. They would not allow you to worship the one true God. And if you're a Hebrew, it's vocationally narrow. Because your job, pretty much your one job, is to build pyramids. And pyramids are really tombs to leaders who think they're God, the pharaohs. So you make pyramids, and then later you make bricks. That's your job. Now, in return for working all the time and not getting to worship and never getting to really rest, you do receive food, water, and shelter. In the ancient world, these are important things for survival. And if you like consistency, you have it in Egypt. You have the security of knowing tomorrow, I get to make pyramids and make bricks. And the next day, I get to make bricks and build pyramids. And the next day, and, and there is no rest. So my point being, the spiritual reality of Egypt is all those things plus a place. All right, here's another one. Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. So this is when Jesus has been baptized and he's being sent by the Spirit into the wilderness. But notice what else Mark puts in the details here. 
At once, the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. All right, I would say the physical place is the wilderness. But notice what other details are there. He's being tempted by Satan. There are wild animals present that really don't seem wild. And there's angels, or I might say the divine, there's divine presence in the place he's at. Anybody else know where in scripture there's temptation by Satan, there's wild animals present, and there's divine present? What? What? The Garden of Eden. I think the spiritual reality that Jesus was experiencing and Mark wants to let us know is that even though he was physically in the wilderness, the spiritual reality of what he was experiencing was the Garden of Eden-like. He had the presence of God. There were wild animals that weren't wild and he was being tempted by Satan, but he wasn't being overcome. It was the Garden of Eden, meaning the Garden of Delight, meaning it didn't experience, he didn't experience wilderness as we think he did in that moment. So, the promised land is also a place, actual physical place, but even more than that, it's a spiritual reality. The promised land, it says it flows with milk and honey. Now, milk in the ancient world could be curdled. It was often curdled. It could, they could make cheese. So it's not just milk as in like drink it, but protein and sustenance is what milk means. And honey, it, there is no sugar yet. That hasn't been invented yet. So honey is the only natural sweetener in the world. So this is a place where there's sustenance and sweetness. Okay, some of you might think of Abdallah Chocolate Factory. Okay, that's, that's probably okay. It means the spiritual reality of that place is something that is sweet, something that sustains. It's also a place where you can work and rest, where you can live and worship God, where you can cultivate and create good things and you see and you share and you bless the people around you because you understand you've been blessed by God. That's the spiritual reality of the promised land. And the news that we receive is our physical place. The report we believe is the spiritual reality. So if we want to be people who believe a good report, even if we receive bad news, we need to notice how we're perceiving our spiritual reality. How we see our spiritual reality is how we experience our life. So in the story that Kira read, the God's people, the Israelites, they get moved from Egypt and they go to the wilderness before they go to the promised land. Now, anybody know what happens in the wilderness or how long they're there? 40 years. And, and what is it often thought of as? Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Is it nothing? Bad thing. Bad thing. So many people think the wilderness is punishment. Actually, in the story of Leviticus, Numbers, no, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, much of the story is actually preparation, not punishment. God is trying to change a people. It's the story of getting his people out of Egypt and then getting Egypt out of the people. Okay, so, oh, man, I'm just kind of excited. Uh, Exodus 12 
38 has this juicy verse. It says, a mixed multitude, or I love how the New Living Translation says it, a rabble of non-Israelites went with them, God's people, out of Egypt, along with their flocks and their herds. Okay, the writer's trying to clue us in on something that's going on in how they're experiencing life. This isn't saying, like, ethnically, if they're Israelites, then they're part of this group. It says, in order for you to know if you're the rabble or not, how are you seeing God? Is God good or is he like Pharaoh? Is he for you or is he going to strike you down? If you have too much Egypt in you, you are a rabble of non-Israelites. God isn't going, oh, your blood type is such and such. Oh, your ethnicity, oh, you came from the family of, no, he's, he's just checking your heart. Not in a mean way, but in a non-biased way. And so these people move out. They spend a year in the wilderness. God's preparing them, teaching them, training them. He's trying to transform the way they think about life, about God, about worship and work. He makes them rest every week, once a week. They've never had, once, they've never had a week off. We come to the text and we're like, well, we only work five days or, or maybe less if we get more done. They worked all the time, seven days a week, every day. They got food, they got water, but they always worked. So this idea of having one day off was radical, radical for them. He gives them that rest. They learn how to worship him and build the tabernacle. They learn how to stop and see and celebrate God and each other through these festivals that he gives throughout the whole year. And they take a year and they go through these festivals He's trying to teach them to treat and respect each other as God's image bearers by giving them all of these commandments. They haven't had a, a moral code before. So this idea that they could treat each other respectfully, again, radical. He's transforming their life. And after a year of this, in like Numbers 10 or Numbers 11, it says in the second month of the second year, God moved them out. God thinks they are ready to go into the promised land and live as his people. And so that's where we pick up this story that Kira reads where God sends, tells Moses to send these 12 explorers, these leaders, these influencers into the land to search it out, to find out if it's good or bad, if, it's, uh, if the people are weak or strong, few or many, and, and is the soil fertile or is it poor? Are there trees in the land? is do your best to bring some of the fruit of the land because it was the first season for ripe grapes. Is it possible that God wanted to give them a taste of the promised land? They'd already complained about manna. They'd actually complained and begged for meat. There's this whole quail thing that happens. He already knows about all that. Is it possible that God just wants to give them a taste of the promised land. Maybe he's thinking, you know, if they could just each have a grape or maybe we could crush some and make wine or grape juice. Maybe not, but you know. So they report after 40 days, they report to Moses and Aaron and the whole community and they show them the fruit of the land. It says in verse 23 that they cut off this branch that had this single cluster of grapes and it's so big that they have to carry it between two people with this giant pole. And then they have these pomegranates and figs. Pomegranates and figs are always fruit of the promised land. We'll talk about it some other time. But you have to picture these people carrying this in. It's like, ah, 
There's this, I imagine, a podium. They get up and they talk about what happened. They give, they give their report based on the news that they see, that they saw, that they received. And this was their report. We entered the land that you sent us to explore, and it is indeed bountiful. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. And here's the kind of fruit it produces. Grape. But... The people living in the land are powerful. Their towns are large and fortified. We even saw giants in the land, the descendants of Anak. The Amalekites live in the Negev, which really wasn't where Moses told them to explore. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, they live in the hill country. The Canaanites live along the coast and along the Jordan Valley. Again, not where Moses needed the report from, just the hill country. So point is, he's saying the promised land is true. It's good. It's good. It's good. It's the people. The people are the problem. See, I think we're all explorers and reporters in our own lives. We all get news, and we all have to decide what to do with that. How am I going to report, which tells what I believe, about the news I receive? Do I look at the negative do we look at all the ways it's going to go wrong? Or do I just receive the news, which might be good, it might be bad. So we've got to perceive our spiritual reality. But then Moses, and I think this would apply to us too, asks them to size up the situation. I think that would be smart for us to do. If we want to believe the good report instead of just the news we receive, we got to size up the situation without sizing up ourselves. That's what the people did. Oh, but those people are huge and we're not. They're stronger than us. Everyone's a giant. In fact, we even saw Nephilim and Nephilim and oh, we can't do it. We look like grasshoppers. And so they became like grasshoppers. See, that's what happens when we size up ourselves, we compare what we think we know about them to what we do know about us, and we always come up short. We focus on what we don't have, or what we can't do, or where we're weak, and we never, we never amount to as much as we should. Now, it is wise to size up a situation. If you love donuts and you're like, man, I am, I am taking on Krispy Kreme. I'm going to build this empire of donut places, and you've never made a business plan before, that is not fearless. That's foolish. Don't size up the situation and not think through some of the steps you need. But don't get stuck on sizing up yourself. See, 10 of the explorers, they bring back this report that focuses on the negative. Two bring back a different report. Now, it's Caleb, and we'll find out later in chapter 14, it's Joshua. So Joshua's name means God is salvation. That's a cool name. Caleb's name means dog. <laughs> they have to be of a certain age to be leaders to go into the land. They're not kids. I always think of them as enthusiastic 20-year-olds. But we'll know in the story later that they're, they're definitely over that age. Why isn't Joshua the one who brings the good report? His name means God is salvation. Why is it Caleb? 
I don't think Caleb's even been talked about before this point in the story. And I think it's because the writer wants us to enter the story. If we were in that situation, there's already been 10 people that have given a report that is accentuating the negative. We stand up and give a different report. And I think Joshua isn't the one because Joshua has been Moses' aide since his youth. We find out way, way earlier in the story, he shows up in Exodus before they even leave Egypt. Meaning, whatever Joshua says, it's going to be what Moses wants to hear, what Moses thinks they should do. He's always going to vote party lines with Moses. So his, his voice is worth less. Caleb says, we should certainly do it. God is with us. Well, go take possession of the land. But then the 10 men who'd gone with said, no, we can't. We can't attack them. They're stronger. They spread this bad report. Hashtag fake news. It's just the first time I think that happened. And, and they talk about Nephilim, which are these giants before the flood. The only other time we hear Nephilim in the scripture is in Genesis 6. That's before the flood. So these, when this bad report gets spread, it just spreads like wildfire. They become fearful, frustrated, helpless, hopeless. There's wailing, there's weeping, there's, there's like, if only we died in Egypt or in the wilderness, the, why would the Lord bring us out here to just let us die? Our wives and children are going to be taken away. We should choose a new leader and go back to Egypt. Do you ever know anyone like this? It gets a tad emotional about it or turns any news into a bad report? I mean, just hypothetically, like, hey, congratulations on that promotion. Oh, well, thanks. I mean, yeah, it's been okay, but I sure have to work a lot more. Oh, but I bet you get paid more. Well, yeah, but like, I see my family less, and I have to spend time in meetings more, and spend more time with my boss. Turn good news into a bad report, or you are someone that says, how are you doing? And at restoration, we really do mean, how are you doing? As a question, not just a greeting. But probably on a Sunday, we're expecting, you know, like, how are you doing to be a two-minute flyover of your life? You know, just a quick update, not a two-hour tell-all that perseverates on one thing that you've been talking about with every single person that you've met in the last two weeks. That is more than, you know, the person's probably asking for. And now people probably don't want to talk to you because you can't stop talking about that one thing that isn't maybe even a bad report. You're just turning it into a bad report. Hypothetically saying. Faith will turn news into a good report. Fear will turn news into a bad report. Even if the news is good or bad, it's more important how we believe it. That's the report. And so we've got to do, I think the third thing we have to do is we have to filter faith from emotion and fear, or faith from fear. Filter reason from emotion and faith from fear. Like just asking some calm, reasonable questions about whatever your situation that you're facing is. Talk to someone who's kind of calm and steady, whose hearts are steadfast. 
who have no fear of bad news. Well, do you know anyone else who's gone through this situation, who has made it to the other side? Maybe you could talk to them. Or, hey, how could the land devour the people if they're so strong? And how could they be so strong if the land devours the people? And if the Nephilim are really before the flood, then how did they survive the flood? I mean, it did rain for 40 days and 40 nights. The earth was covered for quite a long time. I mean, even good swimmers can't tread water for that long. They really probably didn't make it. And, and the walls, archaeologists say, the walls of these cities were 20 feet thick and 25 feet high. Just think about that. 20 feet thick, 25 feet high. That's much taller than the ceiling. Wouldn't anyone look tall up there? I mean, we know that some of the people were giants or very tall, very strong, very skillful, but not everyone. Anyone will look tall in that place. But what are we focused on? Are we focused on God and thus on his presence and power or on the news of all the ways we can't do it? The uh, Positive Coaching Alliance research says that an athlete needs five positive comments for every one negative comment. So if you're a math person, if you give two negative comments, that's 10. We have 10 and two in this story too. It's just flipped. 10 people bringing the negative, two people bringing the positive. And Caleb stands up and silences the people. Is this just over-enthusiastic idealism? I mean, he saw the land, he saw the people, he knows the resources or the lack thereof that the Israelites have, how they were slaves in Egypt, they made bricks, they didn't learn how to fight. So why would he have these thoughts? I think it's because Caleb was focused on God's presence and his promises. See, Caleb paid attention when Moses was giving out all these commandments and then all these ceremonial laws and all these things before they actually left. Moses also gives them a preview of the promised land. It's sandwiched in Leviticus 26. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it, but I want you to see it because Leviticus 26 is in the middle of this preparation time. And God gives this little preview of what the land is going to be like. Pay attention. He says, if you follow my decrees and you're careful to obey my commands, I will send you seasonal rains. The land will then yield its crops. The trees of the field will bear fruit, produce fruit. Your threshing season, that's when you plant grains, will last and overlap with the grape harvest that comes later or earlier. And then the grape harvest will go all the way up to your planting of grain. So you will eat your fill and live securely in the land. That sounds nice. Even more, God says, I will give you peace in the land and you will be able to sleep without cause for fear. Have you ever prayed for that? God, would you give me peace in my heart? If home is where the heart is, would you give me peace in the land right here so that I could sleep without cause for fear, no matter what news I receive? In fact, I will rid the land, God says, of wild animals. I will keep your enemies out of the land. In fact, you will chase down your enemies. You will slaughter them with your swords. I like how the New Living Translation's, you know, done everything up until here. Because this kind of sounds like God is this warmongering, you know, violent, loving God who sends people out to kill people with their swords. Actually, the, the Hebrew says, 
they will, like, you will chase down your enemies and they will fall facing the sword. The sword of the spirit is the word of God. God puts flaming swords at the edge of the Garden of Eden to protect the way. They will fall before the sword. Is it possible that God isn't talking about slaughtering people, but having them come face to face with the divine presence of God? Five of you will chase a hundred. That's not one to five. That's not 10 to two. That's like one in 20 if you do the quick math. Five of you will chase a hundred. A hundred of you will chase 10,000. Now we're at one in a hundred odds. And, and we're doing the chasing if we're God's people. That's what happens in the promised land. What? There's not an easy button? There's not like recliners and lazy boys and Buick Park Avenues? It's like driving your couch around? No. Five of you will chase 100. 100 of you will chase 10,000. It's not like easy, but God is with you. All of your enemies will fall facing the sword. See, I think if we're going to be people who believe the good report, instead of just the news we receive, we have to focus on God's presence and his promises. God's already given them the land. He's promised it over, at least over 150 times already in the story. Maybe, and, and the point isn't the story. The point is, you're an explorer and a reporter in your life, and so am I. And there are probably things that God's already promised you in your life. That he's already prompted you to do. And you're going, I don't know. There's this reason and this reason and this reason. Those are just reasons. Yeah, but it's true. Just because it's a fact doesn't make it true. I mean, the fact was that Jesus was dead and crucified on a Friday but the truth was that he rose on a Sunday. And, and Jesus, literally, his name, the gospel, not Jesus, the gospel means good news. And Jesus is this good news because the news he received was that he was going to die on this Friday, and he was. But the report he believed is the best report ever, that he rose from the grave, that his death and resurrection actually paved a way so that every human possible that created could be restored with God forgiven by God, have peace and purpose and life. That's the report that you and I can believe. doesn't matter what the, the odds are, whether it's one in five or two in 10 or one in 20 or one in 100, one plus God is always a majority. Where is he talking to you in your life? What report do you need to believe? If God is our creator and our redeemer and our sustainer, then I think we can claim the motto of this French World War I hero. His name was Marshal Ferdinand Folk. He said, there are no hopeless situations. There are only men and women who've grown hopeless about them. See, some of you, I pray with you, I talk to you, you feel like your faith is dying in the desert. It's not because of your problems. It's because of the report you're believing about your problems. Some of you are carrying the grapes out of the land, but you're so afraid of the giants that you won't go get what God already gave you. 
Where is he talking to you right now? And what are you saying back to him? Are you telling God about all your problems? Or are you telling your problems all about your God? I got a call from a restoration friend who just received the news that he has testicular cancer. Now, he doesn't know that I have another friend who had testicular cancer, and he went through that. But he's nervous, he's scared, and he's gotten some bad news. But I have another friend, more of an acquaintance. She just found out she has cancer too. And she said this to me. I recently received the news that I have cancer. So how am I to know God's plan? What's the report I should believe? Well, my desire is for God to use me and to bring others to him through his name. And it's already brought my family together. And I believe God has I believe that God is for me in this struggle with cancer. I know that I have salvation from Jesus. I know that I have the presence of the Holy Spirit. I know that I have the prayers of other believers. So what am I to do? You know what? I don't want a pink ribbon. Give me a black ops beanie. I love that. No pink ribbon for me. Give me a black ops beanie because it is all out spiritual warfare and I will continue to rejoice in my God. Can you have that kind of report that you are believing that every day that you go out, no matter what comes your way, no matter what trouble comes, you can take heart because God has overcome. Jesus has overcome the world. You can wear the black ops beanie too. You can stand firm in the promises and protection of God who loves you and is for you and is with you. See, Paul says in Philippians 4, 8 and 9, he says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is pure, whatever is right, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. But he says this, whatever you have seen or heard or learned from me or seen in me, put it into practice. If we just think about the things, but we never put them into practice, the God of peace is not with us. But if we put them into practice, it says the God of peace is with you. Caleb was able to say that. God is surely with us. Let's go into the land. And even though the people didn't, I believe that Caleb's spiritual reality for the next 40 years of wandering was he was in the promised land. He was teaching the next generation about what it meant to see and claim and live into God's promises even though there was all of this wandering. Would you live in your spiritual reality? Would you be aware of your situation and size up the situation and not yourself and, and filter the reason from the emotion and the faith from the fear and then focus on God's presence and his promises? Father God, we just pause and acknowledge that you're here. That all of us receive news. Some of us receive bad news. And I don't claim to poo-poo the news. But I also know that you're bigger than, than the news that we get. You are bigger than cancer. You're bigger than death. You're bigger than sickness. You're bigger than abandonment. You're bigger than lies. You're bigger than slander. You're bigger than sin. Jesus, you were the one who took news of being crucified and you died and you rose again. You gave us the greatest report ever. So we just stand 
in your presence, we stand in your promises, and we will believe the good report. Not naively, but faithfully. Speak to us about where we're exploring and where we're reporting. God, as we go into our vision meeting, I pray that we could again hear the news that we are believing in the report that we are hearing. That you would know, that we would know that you've made a whole way for us. For you say that you so love the world that you gave your one and only son, your first and your best, that any who believe shall not perish, but have everlasting life. God, will we receive your gift? And will we live fearlessly into it? Amen.